Can you stand for the reading of God's word? Sorry. <laughs> Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 27 through 28. I'll be reading a portion of that text. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 249. Hear the word of the Lord. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I had found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremiahites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, well, let's, let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray, I pray that in this time you would use your word to hold us fast. And through it, you would point us to Christ and the great hope that we have in him, even in the midst of the problems in which we find ourselves. And now, Lord, would you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts pleasing in your sight. We pray this 
to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the scripture that I prayed with a friend, with a church member this morning, as or not this morning, but this week as we met for, for coffee. We were just having small talk about how our weeks were going, and I told him what I'll tell you now. This was a tougher week than I thought, not because of things in my own life circumstances, not because of you know just drama in the church or anything of that nature. What was difficult was wrestling with... 1 Samuel 27 and 28. This is, in my opinion, uh, some of the most perplexing chapters in the book of 1 Samuel that we're going to look to today. And if you, if you read, you know, we, we break up our weeks and we, I can't, I could preach a whole sermon on 1 Samuel, but y'all like lunch and dinner, so we, we preach a few passages at a time. But if you just kind of read through in one sitting and you go from chapter 26 and straight into 27, it feels like you get some Davidic whiplash at times. And if you think chapter 27 that you just heard read is tricky, one of the main characters of chapter 28 is a real life witch. Like, what in the world are we doing? What are we looking at this morning? Welcome. If you're a guest, this is the strange and wonderful real world of the Bible that we want to talk through today. And so I have been thankful for this reminder, even as I prayed and opened. This is from Second Timothy 3. All Scripture. All Scripture. Not just our favorite passages. Not the passages that we can like read and really easily understand. Not the ones that are cross-stitched and hanging on your hallways at home. But all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so what profit might God have for us here in, in these two chapters? Here's the main point. You're going to find it there at the top of your note sheet if you grabbed one of those on the way in. It's this, because we so often create our own problems, we desperately need God's grace. Because we so often create our own problems, we desperately need God's grace. And to organize our time together, we're going to, to just start by looking at these two kings, at King David and King Saul, who end up, metaphorically at least, kind of in pits that they have dug with their own hands. One is trapped in deception, and one is trapped in divination. And then we want to back out from the story and ask ourselves, of applying this, ask, how do we avoid that same mistake, where if you find yourself there, how do we get out? My prayer this week has been that we would, we would truly see, just in these texts, some of what these texts are meant to do, I think, are to show us the depths of our need and how our own actions have trapped us frequently in places that we cannot get out of by our own ingenuity. And I'm praying that if you're there, and if you're able to get there in this text, that you would see that at that lowest point, is just when you realize how much you need God's grace. And we see that today. Now, as we go through chapters 27 and 28, uh, we're going to see these two problems of king's own making. But before we get there, if you missed last week, I'll just, this is a, the one sentence overview. David 
three times last week, chapters 24, 25, and 26, he was tempted to take matters into his own hand, to kill Saul a couple of times so that he could just avoid suffering, make it straight to the kingdom to kill this guy named Nabal who had provoked him to wrath so that he could get vengeance. And all three times he passes the test. He says, you know what? God is the judge and I can leave that as his hands. He's promised I'll become the king and I don't have to have blood on my hands to get there. God will bring that to pass. So it is a little disorienting when you turn to chapter 27 and we read a story of this king, King David, trapped in deception. At the very end of chapter 26, it seems like maybe Saul and David, maybe they could potentially make peace. But like there's lots of points where you feel like that throughout the story. And David has learned the lesson. Saul is treacherous. He is going to turn away from the promises he makes. He is going to come after David. So in verse 1 of chapter 27, David says to himself that if he stays around in Israel any longer, Saul will eventually catch up to him and kill him. And he comes up with a plan. And it's a plan that sounds pretty similar to something we read earlier back in chapter 21. The, it's the idea, you know, the enemy of my enemy might be my friend. So he's going to go to the Philistines. And he thinks that maybe if he goes there, Saul will give up the chase and he can find safety and security in the land of the Philistines. So David takes his 600 men, all of their families, and he goes over to, to Achish, the king of Gath. And previously, in chapter 21, when David kind of came by himself with the sword of Goliath, Achish and his men were like, no, not not able to stay here. But now it looks like David is coming with this mercenary force. And so Achish says, yeah, I want, I'll take some, some free labor, some guys who can fight for me. And David's plan works. Right? Saul hears David's gone over there. He says, I'm not going to go chase David into Philistine territory, put my life at risk to chase him. He'll just... Be out of mind over there. Now, verses 5 through 7, you get this quick little story. David says, hey, you don't want a bunch of country bumpkins like us living in the royal city. Why don't you just give us this rundown town over here? We'll take that. He gets the city of Ziklag. And that means that he's no longer living under the nose of Achish. And that's pretty important because for the next 16 months, David's going to occasionally make trips from Ziklag back to Achish and Gath. Okay, and when he comes to see the king who gave him the city, he's going to bring tribute. He's going to bring oxen and sheep and camels and clothing. And Achish looks at this and says, where'd you get this stuff? Where'd you make a raid today to bring all this? And David just says, oh, you know, the, the Negev of Judah, the Negev of the Jeremalites that I had struggled. I don't know how to say well, so Jeremalites uh, against the Negev of the Kenites. Uh, those are all places, by the way, like near Israel or in Israel or the Kenites or people who are listed as friendly to Israel. So over and over, David is saying, I got all this stuff from people who are in Israelite territory or people who are friendly with the Israelites. And so Achish says, yeah, great, good, bring it on. But we're readers, we're not listeners. We, we can see what's actually going on here. And we know the truth. And the spoil that is coming is not from some slain Israelites and their allies. It's actually coming against these Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, groups that were inhabitants of the land. They lived in the promised land and traditionally were enemies of Israel. 
And David is very shrewd, but very violent. So he says that he goes and he kills all the men and women so that nobody can go tattle and tell Achish what's actually going on. And he takes the spoil. Some he's probably able to keep, some he gives back to Achish as tribute. So for David, he, he is now, he's kind of having his cake and eating it too. Right? He's, he's able in his own mind to say, like, I'm fighting against, against enemies of Israel. And I've got this guy that I've tricked who thinks that I'm able to live here. And I'm just, I'm able to live here peacefully. All I've got to do is this deception and this kind of raiding. And so Achish looks at him and says, I've got a bodyguard for life. I've got somebody who's odious to Israel, somebody who's going to be here and protect me. And that's when the shoe drops in chapter 28. And David finds that that carefully laid plan that he's made actually turns into a trap that he has walked into. So in chapter 28, verse 1, the Philistines gather for war against Israel. And Achish says, I've got this, this mercenary who's been already fighting against Israel. And he tells David, you know that now you're expected. You're, you have to go out with us. Against Israel. And you see the dilemma here, I hope, right? The, the true colors of David are going to have to come out one way or, or the other. Right? He, he's either going to have to go and fight Israel, who he is supposed to be the king over one day. Like, he's supposed to be the one that they look to one day to be their leader, but he's now faced, am I going to go fight against them? Or, or is he going to show that his host has been fooled that Achish shouldn't have been trusting him and that he has been untrustworthy, a traitor this whole time. In verse two, he gives this answer is actually a really ambiguous answer. He says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. If you're Achish, you hear that and you're like, yeah, my boy is going to go out there and show me he's going to prove himself to me. David may be saying, you'll see what I can do as he and his men turn on Achish. But for today, you don't get to know until next week, because the story just stops right here. And it stops right here because it wants us to see what's happening. That David has ended up, ended up in a trap of his own making. Now, I do want to step back for a minute, and here's where I want to, I want to invite you a little bit into my struggle this week and ask you to put on kind of Bible interpreter hat with me, because this is uh, a text I've felt conflicted over a few different ways and a few different times this week. And, and I think I said this in the very first sermon of First Samuel, but this is some part of the hard part of reading a historical narrative. What we have before us is a story of what David did. There is nothing in this text that tells us, thus David sinned, or thus David w- performed righteousness. Nothing that is clearly telling us this is what we must think about this story. And that presents us with a challenge. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to present two things. I'm going to tell you where I stand, but just to, to open the deck and show you everything that people say about this. I want to be honest. There are faithful Christians who, who read this story and say, because the Bible does not condemn David... And because, like, if you've been tracking with us for weeks, David is on the ascendancy. He's moving towards kingship, towards ruling over Israel. And so they would say, this is David caught in a situation that he is not responsible for. And ultimately, he is, uh, he is in the right in what he's doing. 
That we should be careful not to condemn his actions here. And there, there's some good arguments for that. After all, God does allow David to escape from Saul. It could have gone really badly. He could have been kicked out. Uh, they would also just say that, you know, God has told the people, like told Joshua coming into the promised land, he was supposed to drive out all the inhabitants. And these are people who are called inhabitants of the land. Some people who were there from of old. So maybe he's just doing kind of cleanup work on the way out. I do think we can be sympathetic with David. If you've never been in a spot where you're like, I don't know what to do, and it feels like I'm in a rock and a hard place, like David is there, right? But, but I also think that the text here, not, not just me, I think the text presents him as in the wrong here. And the main reason I think that is because of the nature of the destruction of the people of the land. When, when you look at what he is doing, especially in verse 11, David tells us why he is doing this. It is not that he feels like a zeal for God, that he wants to go drive out the inhabitants and cleanse the land of these people. It's because he is shrewd that he drives them out. He kills them so that he would not be exposed, not out of a zeal to rid the land of Canaanites. Even the language used here, if you read through Joshua, if you even go back to 1 Samuel 15, right there God through Samuel told Saul, I want you to devote Amalek to destruction. That's kind of the language that's used. That language doesn't appear here anywhere. And so I'm, I think this looks like a different thing that David is acting shrewdly, but violently to protect himself. And that that kind of thing is what lands him in hot water here. I do want to back up even further and say, if we want to say, how did David get here? How did he end up in Philistia fighting as a mercenary on, for this kind of war? This is where the whiplash doesn't just hit in verse 11, it hits in verse 1. And what David is saying to himself, it feels so out of sync with who David has been. David, all along, so many times, he's been one we've said, he's an exemplar. He's doing exactly what God would want the people to do. Remember David of chapter 17? Like David and Goliath, all the people running in fear, and David said, who is this guy? He's tall, yeah, but... He's an uncircumcised Philistine. And the living God fights for us. And now in, in chapter 27, it looks like he's talked himself into the belief that Saul will one day kill him, even though that is contrary to the very promise he has received from the Lord, that Samuel's word. And while we can sympathize with that kind of anxiety, I don't think it reflects the faith that David rightly had in so many other incidences. And if I could, I just want to pause and briefly press that in. Be careful, friends. Be careful what voice is on repeat in your head and in your heart. Be careful. This whole sequence of events in 27, it is initiated by David saying to himself, I am sure to die. I'm going to die by Saul's hand. And he ultimately believes that. Now, I do want to be very careful here. Um, because this is a place where we can be really trite. You could hear this as like some Peter Pan kind of theology. So if you remember what it takes for Peter Pan to fly, it's some pixie dust and happy thoughts. 
You say, well, David was just telling himself unhappy thoughts. He needs to think happy thoughts. And then things magically get better. That is not the story of 1 Samuel 27. If you write that down as like a good example, scratch it out and write bad beside it. Okay? This is not a call to think happy thoughts of himself. It's not that David or, or that we need to think happy. But we do need to think and rehearse what is true. What is right. David here has acted kind of like his own propaganda arm. Right? He, he has told himself this truth over and over, this lie, that I will die at the hand of Saul, contrary to the promise. And we, friends, are just as susceptible. Like the propaganda wing of my brain is fully formed and it is able to lie to myself over and over again. It will speak to me the things that are not true about God, about me, about my circumstances. When we, we may not have the specific kinds of promises. I don't have a promised kingship coming to me. But all the promises that I read in Scripture, they are just as certain and just as true as what God promised David. So God has, has told you and I, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Jesus looks at his disciples and say, says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. We have this promise in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes and death shall be no more. And those are not just good wishes. Man, I hope those things come true. Those are certainties that are going to come. But if I whisper to myself constantly that those things don't apply to me, or that God is good, but he actually can't bring those about in this circumstance. It becomes harder and harder for me to grasp hold of the truth that God has given us. It becomes easier to act in fear and instead of faith. So what this story should drive into our hearts is that we are tempted to be just like David. And one, it, it may even happen from chapter to chapter, right? One day we stand in victory against temptation and sin and unbelief and just flip the page and we find ourselves letting circumstances dictate our actions and our thoughts and our hopes. Uh, that's not just for David, too. It's the kind of story you read in Peter, right? And if, if David feels like whiplash from chapter to chapter, Peter is whiplash from verse to verse. Right? Matthew chapter 14, Jesus comes walking to him on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if that is you, would you command me to come out to you on the water? And in faith, he walks. And then the very next verse says, and he sees the wind and he begins sinking under the waves. Because it turns out that disciples are, immune, are not immune to doubt and to fear. And to looking at their own circumstances instead of staring squarely in the face of their creator. Be careful, be careful, brothers and sisters, what voices on repeat in your own head, what you keep telling yourself. Is it true or is it false? That will dictate your actions in so many ways. And now, I, I, before we move on to the next word, I, I know that some of you, um, I love being your pastor, and I know that some of you, struggle with anxious thoughts that's like a consistent battle that you fight not just the occasional thing that comes in your life and before we move on i, I want you to hear two things uh, first is this that we should we should fight like this is a battle and we should fight with all the strength that the holy spirit gives us in christ 
to look to the faithfulness of Jesus over the fears that we whisper to ourselves. Kids, you, uh, you may feel like there is no escaping from the worry that eats at you daily, whether that is tests that are upcoming, whether that is something that may happen to a loved one that you have no control over. And parents and grandparents, friends, we, we feel that same kind of fear. Even if you feel strong about your own life, it's easy to whisper lies about those that you love dearly. I'm not saying that life is not scary, but I'm, I'd encourage you, every time that you start rehearsing those fears, rehearse what is true about the God who loves you and gave himself for you. Don't listen to the lies that you tell yourself, but rehearse the truth. And the second thing that you need to hear, if you are one of those sheep who feel this anxiety often, is that God is so gracious. And if you feel like you are at the end of yourself, like you can't pull yourself up, like you tell yourself what's true and three minutes later you fall back into thinking a lie again. Know that God is gracious. David did get himself into this mess. Peter sank in the waves due to his own fear. But remember the very next verse when Peter sinks under the waves. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Friends, we we serve a tender Savior who doesn't let his anxious children drown, but who in his mercy grabs hold and saves and puts back on solid ground. Anxious friend, anxious brother or sister in Christ, fight with everything the Holy Spirit has given you to fight with and know that we all will fail and that God is merciful to pick you up when you do. To keep fighting. We desperately need God's grace and he is faithful to give it. Now that that is the the end of this story. It is a cliffhanger. It picks back up in chapter 29. We'll look at it next week. You can read it this afternoon if you just can't wait. Uh, I'd actually encourage you to read it between now and Sunday. That will help you. But uh, we'll, we'll pick that back up. And we come from, uh, we get David kind of stuck here. Is he going to betray the Philistine king, or is he going to betray Saul, the Lord's anointed? But then the passage shifts and looks at Saul, because Saul is actually trapped in his own problem as well. It's not the trap of deception, though there is deception happening in verse in chapter uh, 28 that we read here. But call, Saul is a king who ends up trapped in divination, so looking at calling out to other spirits. And this is, just really frankly, if you want to talk about the bizarre world of the Bible, this is like one of the most strange stories in scripture it starts in verse uh, verse 3 of chapter 28 okay this is just necessary background information for thinking through this story now samuel had died and all israel had mourned for him and buried him in ramah his own city and saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land uh, the word medium is not something that we use frequently in terms of a person uh, so kids, especially if you don't know what a medium is, that's okay. Just think about what the word means. Medium is something that goes like is in between something. Okay, so if you have a shirt that's large and small and you want something in between, you get a medium. If you, the volume is not loud or quiet, it's kind of medium. A medium, a person who is a medium, is someone who goes between the living and the dead. Someone who is believed to be able to speak from the living to the dead. 
And the Bible, to be very clear, this is on your note sheet. This is one you can walk away with, and it's not, you know, you probably don't have this cross-stitch, but you should just know clearly what the Bible thinks about this practice, okay? Leviticus 20, verse 7 says, A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. Just a few verses before that, same chapter, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 6, it says, If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Okay, so God's people are not to practice talking to the dead, and they're not to go find others who say they can talk to the dead. Both things are forbidden very plainly in the law. So it looks like Saul has done a good thing putting those who were doing this out of the land. And then there's some tension that comes in in verse 4. Okay, verse 4 of chapter 28. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. You may wonder, like, Saul's talking to God. God's not answering what? Why? Well, over and over, Saul has shown himself frequently throughout the book that he does not really desire to hear and obey the Lord. By this point in the story, we've, we've seen him show this in a variety of ways. One, we're told the Holy Spirit and has already departed from Saul because he's refused to obey. So access to a spirit-inspired dream seems to have left. Uh, it says he can't, he can't call, the Lord is not answering by Urim. Uh, that's part of a priestly garment, so it's something where like a priest would reach in and pull out this Urim. I don't know what else it is. called an Urim. I'm just going to call it that. And if you had a question of the Lord, the Bible says God could give an answer, a Priestly appointed answer. Should we go up and attack the city? Yes. But that was, that was in the priestly garments. And you remember what Saul did to the priests? He's, he's slain them all. And there's one that escaped. And he went to David. So the Urim is actually, Saul doesn't even have access to this anymore. God doesn't speak by the priests to Saul. And he's over and over disregarded the prophets. Samuel has told him what to do in multiple occasions. And Saul just kind of halfway obeys and so he has heard God's word come to him multiple times, but he's refused to submit to it, and now the Lord is silent. Uh, commentator Dale Ralph Davis, he puts it this way, the text is not gentle, but it is clear. If you despise God's word, he will take it from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. And that's where Saul finds himself. So in the face of Saul's silence, he turns from looking to the living God to go and find someone who will speak to the dead for him. This is verse 7. Saul said then to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguises himself. He goes to speak to the medium. They some negotiation that happens. She's worried that she's going to die. She knows it's illegal. And he's like, it's, nothing's going to happen to you. And so in verse 11, the woman asks Saul, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. 
The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, that that little paragraph of scripture may raise for you a whole host of questions that I am not going to answer right now. So if you have questions, feel free to email dbrown at pbchurch.org and he would love to answer them when he gets back. Or talk to me after church and I can talk to you through some of the things I've thought through. But, but this woman who has likely spent most of her life honestly just deceiving people or maybe conversing with demonic spirits, something happens here that seems totally unique to her experience. She sees Samuel. And, and when she does, like she lets out a scream. It seems like she's as surprised as you and I are. And uh, she, she doesn't really even seem to be knowing what's going on. Samuel, uh, Saul says, what do you see? And she's likely a polytheistic pagan. She worships many gods. And so she's like, I just may be a god. I don't know. Something weird's happening. And when Saul hears, though, that this wearing a robe, he says, okay, no, no, no. That's Samuel. And that's really ironic because the last time that Saul saw Samuel, it involved his robe as well. And if you remember what happened at the very end of chapter 15, Samuel tells Saul, hey, you've been rejected by, as king. And he turns to walk away and Saul grasps at the robe of Samuel and ends up tearing it. And Samuel says, you know what, that's a parable. That's what that is. The kingdom has been torn from you. And it will be given to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so now Saul hears, hears Samuel. I'd love the text said with a torn robe. It doesn't. It's a robe. But he knows that is Samuel. And then Samuel and Saul have this conversation starting in verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Saul here gets none of the information that he wants. Right? No battle tactics, no new information about what's going to happen. He's just told the Lord is going to fulfill his promise. Oh yeah, there's one new piece of information for you to hear. Tomorrow, when Israel loses this battle, you and your sons will lose your lives as well. Saul is like the next inmate up on death row at this point. So he has, the story ends with him having one last meal kind of fit for a king. The, the medium goes and kills a fattened calf makes some unleavened bread to revive his strength. And we're kind of left with this. Saul just seems to be at the end of his life and there's nothing better for him than to eat and drink and be miserable because tomorrow he will die. 
Now, again, like David, we should recognize this, this is a situation of Saul's own making. It is a different magnitude than what David is facing, but Saul has made this, has dug his own grave. It's, it's tragic that for chapter after chapter, Saul has thought that the biggest enemy to his kingdom, the biggest threat that he is facing is David. And now here he seems to go to this medium thinking the biggest enemy, the biggest threat to my kingdom are the Philistines. And friends, we know that throughout this whole story, the biggest enemy and the biggest threat to Saul's kingdom has been Saul himself as he turns from the Lord. His rebellion and his selfishness and his vengeance, they have hardened his heart to the point that he ends in judgment. And if we want to ask the same kind of question that we asked earlier, how did Saul end up here? here here's kind of what led to Saul going here in, in a, a command. Be careful. So beware the deadly allure of playing at religion without submitting to the Lord. Beware of the deadly allure of playing at religion. That's what Saul is so good at. Saul is so good at looking religious in many ways. Here, he puts mediums and necromancers out. He's inquiring of the Lord. But his religion throughout the book is focused on one person and one person only, himself. He is not interested in submitting to God. Putting mediums out That small obedience, that was convenient for a season, and as soon as he needs one, he quickly breaks that law. Inquiring inquiring of the Lord wasn't an attempt at repentance and faith. When he goes to Samuel, he's not saying, hey, I really need to get back to the Lord. I need him to speak to me. He just says, I need a battle plan. I need to know what's going to happen tomorrow. How do I get out of the problem that's come to me? That's Saul's words over and over and over, a desire to save his own crumbling kingdom. Friends, you can fulfill a whole lot of God's law, a whole lot of the time, but that does not mean that you're living with your life submitted to him. We, we were, uh, we brought in new members of the church last week and one church member, uh, incoming member wrote this in their testimony. I think this puts it really well. I wrestled with a desire to keep one foot in the world, never realizing that both feet were firmly planted there. I could feel the Lord drawing me to himself, but wasn't willing to surrender control of my life or sacrifice my own plans for his. That's, that's profoundly thoughtful. The desire to keep one foot in the world that Saul so desired meant that both were there. He was firmly planted there. And that kind of temptation is alive and well today, maybe especially in the Christ-haunted South. It is much easier to pretend to be religious. It is easier to seek the blessing of God than to actually love and seek God himself. While David, we said, is a lot like Peter, casting his eyes to the wind and the waves, Saul is a lot more like Judas. And we can be too. I had a disciple in Jesus by name, the betrayer of Christ and truth. And again, this is where the text stops. Saul and David, having created their own problems. This is the story in many ways of the human condition. We'll pick up the stories next week, but... I don't want to just leave us quite there. We should see the depths of the problems that come about from 
these two men, and you may even just with a little bit of reflection today think through, I, I have seen how my own actions have landed me in some of the deepest pits that I've ever been in. But how then do we get out? Or how do we avoid some of these roads that Saul and David travel all together? And this is the first and the most basic that you'd want to say to Saul. If you feel like you're in that place. The most basic and deepest problem we face is not external to us, but is actually internal to us. And the solution here is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is a, the, Saul again has just said that the, maybe the biggest threat in his mind is an army arrayed against him, but the biggest threat to him is a holy God who comes in judgment against him. And that kind of holy God, that holy God is real then and now. And he's not just coming against Saul, he's coming against sin. And because he's coming against sin, that means he comes against everyone who sets himself up against him. And unlike many of the problems that you and I face where you could come to me and I could say, well, here's some maybe steps that get you out of this, a way, a, a solution to the problem. There is nothing, nothing that we can do to lift ourselves out of this problem, the problem of sin. We, we can't find the right religious ritual to wipe it out. We can't find the, the right things to know to make ourselves better. We can't do enough good things to try to tip the scales of justice in our favor. The solution to our deepest problem does not lie inside of us. It lies outside of us. We need help from another. And that is where the message of the gospel is good news. Not that we are our own saviors, but that there is one who has come to deliver and to save us from not just some of our problems, but from the very deepest problem that you and I face and have. Christ shines like a hopeful ray of light on the dark night of our sin. And friend, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, it doesn't matter how old you are, whether you are a kid or an adult whether you have been in church a thousand times, maybe even this building a thousand times, or if this is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church, how much money you have, you have one and only one great hope. One place that you can turn to and cling to to find freedom from your deepest problem. God, the judge, in his mercy, sent Christ so that he would face the punishment that we deserve. So the problem that we have made, he actually faces the penalty for that problem. And by grace, by grace in Christ, he can raise all of those who cling to him up in life. And today, Christ may be calling on you. And we, we, a church who loves and trusts in this Jesus, we would plead with you. Not to go home and think you will deal with this another day. But to cling to Christ even today. And if that's something you have questions about, I would love to talk to you about that after service. You can find any Christian. If you came here with a friend, you can go to lunch and ask them about what it looks like to hope in Christ. But we would want you not to leave here and miss this message. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, second, second way. How do we avoid some of these traps? Preach truth to yourself. This is thinking through the trap that David falls into. David apparently had talked to his heart long enough so that he believed he has no options but to flee. And sometimes we need to stop listening to ourselves 
and instead start actively preaching to ourselves the truth. That's, that's what happened there in Psalm 42. It's why we read this earlier in our service. The psalmist is in deep distress. He is taunted by his enemies. It says that he feasts only on his tears. And then he turns in verse 5. He does it again in verse 11. He does it again at the end of uh, Psalm 43. And he says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's one of the great British preachers of the 20th century. He reflects on this psalm. It's a long quote. I think it's on the back of your note sheet. But he, he says this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking. Now, the psalmist treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to dress yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Brothers and sisters, we should so treasure the word of God that we're able to preach this to ourselves frequently. You, you want God's word to reverberate in your own head, not to be the lies that quietly whisper to you in the night, but the truth that you shout at yourself when you start to believe those lies. And we want the word of God not to just reverberate in our head, but in our homes. We want to reverberate here in the church. We're not so good that we are great at, at, uh, at going against these lies all the time. We need one another to speak the truth to us when we can't speak it to ourselves. We need to be preaching the truth to ourselves and to one another. Third thing to do, how do we get out? And here we'll conclude. Consider Christ. Consider Christ. Hebrews 12.3 says this, Consider him, consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look at that verse. Do you see the connection the author is drawing? If you want those things at the end, if you want to be stout-hearted and strengthened in the face of hostility, what is this author telling us to do? Look to Christ. Chart a better path than Saul or David. Look to Jesus, the one who endured hostility that you and I will never know. So that he, that we could endure with hope for the life to come. This story, the story of, of chapter 28, the very last kind of thing that happens in the story is Saul walking out into the night. It's, it's a detail we don't really need. Uh, it does just show him walking in darkness, but I think it's showing him not just walking in the darkness of night, but the darkness of his own soul, rejected by God, no favor in the light of the Lord. But for you, brothers and sisters, 
For all here who have found life in Christ, the darkness of night is not the thing that has the last word. I want to close here with this quote from, again, Dale Ralph Davis just helped me think through this and look to Christ even here. The glory of the gospel is that God's Son went through the darkness of God's absence for us. The darkness and agony of God forsakenness. Is not Jesus' cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very much like God has turned away from me and answers me no more. But at the battle of Golgotha, Jesus has walked out into the outer darkness in order that you might walk in the light of life. And now the question presses upon you. Have you yet been seeking this one who has endured the darkness for you? Let me pray for us and let's turn to him. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your, in your grace you did face the darkness of our problem. Not yours, Lord, but ours. And I pray that as we go into this world where we are so often between rocks and hard places, that you would help the truth of your word to reverberate in our heads to the glory of your name. That we would speak truth to one another and to ourselves. That we would cling to Christ and consider him who endured all the hostility that we will ever endure and more. And yet who remained faithful. So help us to walk with him. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.